Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. Tell us a little bit about yourself, man, who you are and what you do. Yeah, so uh, I'm Dave Imond. I'm... I guess you could say I'm kind of still a recent grad from chiropractic school. Uh, I've been practicing clinically for a couple years now. Um, I first, it's definitely not where I thought I was going to end up. uh, And life's definitely taken like a little bit of a 180. But uh, I went to the University of Waterloo during my undergrad in kinesiology. And at that time, I was pretty sure I either wanted to get into research or maybe go off to medical school. Um, And I worked in Stu McGill's lab spine biomechanics lab for a handful of years while I was there and at that time I was thinking like all of this like all of the stats and the data collection and like the the rigors the not fun part of research I guess I was like "Hmm, maybe this isn't for me Um, but I got to see a lot of his clinical interactions and at the time like his word was gospel to me right Mm -hmm. like that's anything that that man said I was like this is it Um, and he actually Uh, We had a conversation and he told me if I wanted to work with people in back pain clinically, I should just go to chiropractic school. So uh, I had never been to a chiro. I didn't know what it was about. Uh, I was probably in the camp of, you know, the the general public that think, you know, poorly of chiros. But I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go do this. So I ended up going to CMCC uh, in 2015. And while I was there, I mean, you guys know what it's like to be in in school. There's some decent information. You start learning a little bit more um, and you're definitely shrouded in a lot of biases. um, And there's definitely this appeal to authority. There's these, uh, a lot of practitioners there that are tutoring that seem to be very successful. So you're just kind of taking, taking their word for things. And so I went through all of that. And at the time I was very much entrenched in like the pathoanatomical model. Like I just had this conversation with uh, Zach Gabor from the level up initiative just the other day. And like, it was so cool. Like you're like, okay, so if I find like this problem over here, then maybe this will help with the back pain and we're fixing all of these things. It seemed like a puzzle. And that was like, so cool to me. So I was definitely into that. Um, and so like things kind of made sense. Uh, I was still one of the students that like, Uh, would question a lot of things and get a couple of eye rolls from like other students. I'm sure you guys have been there, right? Um, So anyways, like I I graduated from there and went out into clinical practice and pretty early on, probably about six months in with all of this stuff, the pathoanatomical model, I was, I was seeing like this, you know, there's a certain percentage of your, of your patient population that are getting better really fast. And you think you're just like so good. And then there's another percentage where like all the stuff you're, you're doing is supposed to be working, but it's not. And so I was starting to like question things a little bit and I took a bit of a step back and uh, started to realize that a lot of the, the good outcomes were just like the good relationships that I was building. Um, you know, these were just like really positive sessions and stuff and it wasn't, you know, getting too overcomplicated. And then the ones that weren't turning out as well, uh, you weren't having that same kind of connection or, uh, those same types of interactions. So around shortly after that, I guess COVID happened. And uh, that's when I started really getting into like reading things, actually like reading papers and staying up to date. And that just sent me down this huge rabbit hole after watching uh, Peter O'Sullivan's talk at the San Diego Pain Summit. And ever since then, it's just been this spiral into the dark void of, of uh, literature and evidence Uh, And it was at that point that we actually, myself and uh, like my colleagues, Ben Cyrnik, Mike Edgar and Elliot Perkins, we started Army. And so putting out articles, continuously learning, having our own podcast and talking to some really intelligent people, uh, it's definitely been a ride. And so I guess at this point, uh, I'm going to be slowly backing out of clinical practice, uh, like in the conventional sense. So I'm starting my my master's uh, of science in the fall and looking at management and um, I guess like diagnosis management of osteoporosis uh, Mm -hmm. and looking at like guideline use and just um, getting better information out to the public as well. 
Uh, and then I'm also teaching at a college, uh, anatomy, and I work at an inpatient facility. So this is definitely a uh, different sort of situation that I don't think many people um, would get the opportunity to experience. But this is a substance, a private substance abuse clinic. Mm-hmm. And so there's a full like medical team there, um, you know, psychiatrists, MDs, nurses, and they brought me in because they do have a lot of people who are dealing with chronic pain um, and kind of went down a, a different type of coping mechanism with, you know, certain medications and or other substances. So my job there is basically to work with these individuals, get them physically active um, and try to kind of guide them through that process while they're there. So that's kind of where I'm at, I guess, a, a bit long winded. But yeah. How did you score that job? I mean, not a, not every Cairo gets that lucky not lucky i guess you work hard obviously yeah. but how, how'd you get into that it actually it was like completely luck um <laughs> because uh, i had a family member who um told me basically and who knew the uh head administrator that was looking for the position and got me in contact with them so i went up for a tour and um basically on that day in unofficially <laughs> signed a verbal contract and and started there um And it's like, it's the most rewarding job, honestly. Like it's one of those jobs. It sounds a little cliche, but it's like, I never dread going there. Uh, I'm always super excited. I'm usually pretty happy when I'm leaving. Um, And it's been a very eye-opening experience in terms of the uh, pitfalls or the negative uh, side of things that can happen from even just like what we think is, is maybe not harmful clinical practice in words, right? Mm-hmm. so yeah we have to unpack the fact that you were working with Stu mcgill and <laughs> uh, you know this is like some he's held to such a large like standard like he is on a pedestal when we talk to just the typical chiropractor right and i'm just curious what was like facing that bias you worked with the man and then you start reading the research and you say maybe flexion extension isn't the devil so i was just kind of curious like how did that go through your mind was it tough at first yeah, probably because um, you're like, that was a huge part of my growth and my, and my learning and, and development was just kind of uh, his work and his um, just even like watching him clinically um, in his lab, working with people um, because you do see some pretty cool interactions and it makes sense. Like when you look at the biomechanics, he has really good biomechanical studies. It makes sense from that aspect, but what we have to remember and something that I didn't realize early on is going from this in vitro study uh, that's, you know, quite well done, but there's obviously limitations with any in vitro study to trying to apply that in a, in a whole person when there are no studies that actually kind of show that like it's, it's not replicated in humans. Right. And it would, that wouldn't get passed by like the ethics board to, you know, do that in, in human beings, but you kind of forget that. Um, but there's a lot of studies, you know, supporting some of his exercises, like the big three and showing the loads that, um, you know, are imposed on the spine and those kind of make sense too. But it's that, it's that giant gap in the middle that you don't realize. Um, and again, like when I talked about some of the biases that can be entrenched in you, especially going through school, you know, we're dealing with, like you said earlier, somebody with a neck ache or a back ache, and mm-hmm. these things are often self-limiting and have a fantastic natural history. So you're in a clinical setting or a gym and somebody has back pain and you say, here, do the big three, these will fix you. And what happens in a couple of weeks? They're usually feeling better, right? So you just think like, okay, this must be great. But it really did come through just reading more. And uh, it was, again, Peter O'Sullivan, like mm-hmm. when he comes out with this complete opposite message like it's okay it's safe to flex your spine a lot of people are guarding um and then you think back to even like some of the conditions that we're dealing with clinically um like spinal stenosis we know that flexion is good for those people so you have to remember that there's it's not a a one sort of method fits all and so it, it really did come from all of the reading and early on i was still thinking like okay this is someone who i still you know highly respect uh, and I was trying to maybe find some reasons why like his stuff was still good. And he still does have some good stuff. Like you can apply some of his work 
um, to, to athletes and, and patients and it's helpful. Um, but now I'm kind of at that, that point where you really can't be on either side of the, the, the spectrum. You got to see the gray instead of the, yeah. the constant black and white. So do some of his methods um, help people for sure, but it's not going to help everybody. And it just took me probably about a year of continually reading and experimenting with, with other methods and, and stuff to kind of see that. But it definitely was hard when this is someone that you like just idolized for years, right? For sure. For yeah. sure. I just saw one of your TikToks just recently about the uh, basically your your bow wrapping. The you you're <laughs> popping the with the bow wrap and like he's like, I'm gonna distract you or I'm gonna get I'm gonna grab your attention while I do the things you should be doing. That was genius. Yeah. And I was, it made me think about how you've been out in practice for a while and TikTok's a relatively new thing. So I'm assuming there was a learning curve for you, right? Like you want to build an audience. You want to build, not only do you want to build an audience because people need this information, but we want to build an audience because we want a business, right? So I was just kind of curious, how have you adapted in these couple of years that you've been out in like practicing in the real world? Yeah, I, I saw a lot of value when we were forced to do some telehealth stuff. And that's, I, I almost did a slingshot effect or like a pendulum effect uh, where I was thinking like, okay, I don't want to ever use my hands again because I can have these really good conversations with people and get them moving and see some pretty good outcomes with that. Um, and I still think that that's a really in general, great way that we can, um, you know, reach people and do some good work with them. Although I'm not completely on the train. I, I joke around that I hate manual therapy, but like it, it has its utility. We have to acknowledge that. Um, so from that perspective, I do find myself, uh, you know, I work with individuals online, creating programs for them, not even within like the chiropractic lens, um, just helping people move more and, and live healthier lives. And I found that that's been a lot more rewarding. Um, but I think having to go through that process of, of working with people in those first few months of the, the, the pandemic and not being able to, you know, have to use your hands or touch them. Um, that really did show me the value of not doing those things and how you can really, you know, shape people's beliefs uh, by, by not constantly using your hands. Um, there was, there was a little bit of a piece. I don't even know if I put it out yet. It was, it was definitely a video that I was thinking about putting on my um, like social media content, but like you can really shape someone's beliefs by those first couple of interactions, whether you're, doing everything with your hands or whether you're not. So, you know, you're looking at someone coming in for their first assessment. And if all you're doing is doing all of these orthopedic tests that we don't, don't really help in a lot of cases, some of them are useful, some of them aren't. Um, you're putting this idea that we're just checking to see if their body's even like working or if it's, you know, um, if things are okay there. Um, and then when you're constantly palpating and feeling for things, people are expecting you to find things and let them know what you're finding. And so when you're finishing your first session with all of that stuff, you at no point got the message across that movement is important. So why should somebody after finishing a, sh a session like that, believe that they, they need to do exercises or stretches, that's not going to help with their adherence. So um, having been able to run people through different, like, I, I don't want to say a movement screen, but just like getting them moving and seeing what feels good, what doesn't without even being in the same room as them, I took that same approach into the clinical room. And that's what a lot of my initial assessments are because somebody starts doing something that they thought was maybe hurtful to them. And then they realize, well, if I just do it a little different way, that actually feels good. Now we can apply that to their sort of plan of management. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that really helped and that really helped with patient adherence to exercise because you're, you're getting this, that's the reassurance. That's the education. It's not just sitting with a spine model or like an iPad and saying this muscle attaches here. And this is where your nerve comes out. Like maybe some people will respond well to that, but ha actually having someone feel movement and realize like, Hey, I actually feel a little bit better after doing that. That can really like drive that point home that this is probably a good idea for you to do to start feeling better. So that's probably a way that I developed with, with all of like, I guess the technology side of things from the, the social media point of view, that's, that hasn't really 
it hasn't really been a goal of mine to, to get patients from that. It's more just to get the message across. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I want more people to see that it, as you guys probably know from your internship, it is so frustrating to have somebody walk into a clinic and tell you everything that previous practitioners have said to them. Um, and their beliefs that their posture is the reason that they're, they're sore or their tight hamstrings or why they have back pain. And, you know, so I want to get these messages across that maybe they don't have to be putting as much weight in those things. And there's other more important factors, right? Yeah. I, I really like that point that you made where, you know, if, if everything you do within the first couple of encounters, it is going to set expectation. I really like that idea because they, we, when we get patients handed down to us, they already have an expectation from the previous people that they've worked with. You know, I, I had to go check somebody's heels for their balancing of their hips, you know, and I'm sitting there, you know, their faces down. So I'm kind of just looking around the room like, yeah, they look great, you know, and, and I, I like how you brought that to the forefront where it's just, we tell these people, all right, yeah, we adjusted you, uh, make sure you exercise or do these exercises that I halfway mentioned through our, inter our interaction here. Uh, how, how do you expect them to actually do it? But if you, you know, if you, you screen them or, you know, for lack of a better word, you screen them or you put them through these movements. Now you're really putting this as a priority. So I really like how you brought that, brought it to the forefront. You, uh, you're laying eggs in my brain. <laughs> and right for on. me, like ma making patients move is part of the education and reassurance because you can educate them and you can tell them like, Hey, flexing your spine is good for you. And no amount of education will get the message across as like, okay, let's, let's do some spinal flexion. And once they do it with a little bit of reassurance, it's like, oh, you're like this, there's nothing wrong with this. Yep. But I think yeah. that just combining it, just combining both is better than just reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. Yeah. And then you also have to look at it from like the perspective that we're taught. It's like they say, when you're going through your physical exam, you want to do your ranges of motion. They usually talk about passive, active, resist it. And you're just like, okay, flex. Okay. Now extend, now do this. And if you're just doing it that way and you say, okay, I want you to bend forward and someone does and it hurts and you stop there. Now they think, okay, that hurts. What are you doing with that? Um, but maybe you should try to do it a couple more times. Does it hurt more? Is it starting to feel a little bit better now that you're doing it a little bit more? Sometimes it does. And then you can get, drive that point home again that, okay, so maybe it's not as bad. Maybe we just need to like groove that movement in a little bit more and get used to it. Um, or using like other ways you know, some people who are flexion intolerant and you get them to stand up and try to touch their toes, they're fighting gravity that they're, they're going to be guarding and it's probably going to hurt. You get them to sit down, relax and try to touch their toes. And all of a sudden it doesn't feel quite as bad. And they've just gone into a similar amount of flexion. That's when you can say, well, you know, look, you, you did just as much bending of your back and that seems to feel better. And a lot of times I'll ask them why. And they just look at me, they'll be like, well, you're the, you're the Cairo. You should be telling me why. Right. But no, like sometimes you can sort of talk those things through and then they're like, okay, that's starting to make sense. So this stuff is safe. It's the same type of movement. Maybe I can start taking advantage of this stuff to feel better. So it's, it's trying to, to develop, I guess, a little bit more of that process of of teaching through the initial assessment like you said the education and the reassurance through practice as opposed to just kind of going through that checklist of tests and then trying to use a pamphlet or something right right yeah. and i know i know that biomechanics don't matter as much as we thought they mattered for pain but just knowing your biomechanics you can use it to kind of like this sounds wrong but to trick patients Like I've had patients like flexion intolerant, they're scared of flexing. We do some cat cows. Guess what? You just flex your spine. Like there's nothing wrong with it. So just knowing different ways of different, yeah, just knowing your biomechanics and just tricking them. It's like, there you go. You just flex your spine without even knowing yeah. me. <laughs> Saying like trick them like that, that like I feel bad when I say that, but it's true. Like it's, uh, I'll give you an example, actually. So I just had a, a patient pass down to me who's been dealing with like two years of severe, um, like low back pain. Um, and has been gone, like she's gone through the gauntlet and seen every specialist, every person. Um, and it hurts so much just to bend over and like put a sock on. And Uh, she was open to actually getting some load in because she's done none of that over the past two years. It's been all like breathing exercises and things like that. And those, she said, hurt her quite a bit like that. And so it's been really uh, frustrating for her 
to be doing these things that are supposed to be like the easiest movements and it hurts and she can't get past that point. And so she was thinking she was broken and kind of a lost cause. Um, but she, she was deadlifting just the other day and it was hilarious because well, not hilarious, but she walks up to the bar. She's been lifting all of her life and she bends over and gets set up in the bar position. No, like literally just bends her back to, to put her hands on the bar sets up, and then bangs out a bunch of deadlifts at a buck 35. And I said, how'd that feel? She's like, that was amazing. I, I miss doing deadlifts. I love deadlifts. And I was like, look, you, you literally just bent over with a rounded spine to touch the bar. And that felt good. So that's when we, we got into this big conversation of like context where um, she's had this idea that bending forward hurts. And so like, you know, bending over to pick up a pencil off the ground is dangerous to her and she guards and, and it doesn't feel good. Yet she's always had this positive sort of environment or this positive outlook on exercise and deadlifting. And she had no pain when she did it, um, which I thought was really like interesting. And it's fun to get those points across and see that kind of like aha moment. It's never going to be that easy right off the bat. And there's still like a lot of work to go, but it's, it's fun to see that. And like, just when someone realizes they've almost been tricked into doing something or they've tricked themselves into doing something, that's when it really starts to make sense for them. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a real it's a real art form for you to put your patient in the driver's seat, you know, and as you mentioned, like, you know, you can ask these questions and the true purpose of you asking these questions is for them to kind of realize you planted the seed. But, you know, you might get that that fire back saying like, oh, oh, you're supposed to be the expert here. It's like, no, 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 no. And, and that's and that's a hit to the ego when they say that to you and just kind of like, oh, maybe I didn't I shouldn't ask this question. So. Like I said, it's, it's a true art form, you know, it takes time to, to, I guess, leave your ego at the door Mm -hmm. and it takes time to get used to some of those awkward interactions because yeah, you will definitely have a patient that comes in and is maybe not impressed with the fact that you're trying to get more information out of them and get them to guide the story. Um, And for like, the thing is, is that not every patient is going to work for you and you're not going to work for every patient and you have to Mm -hmm. accept that and that's okay. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's, they say something like that and it sticks with you for the rest of the day, keeps you up at night or something. But no, the more, the more you go through those awkward situations and maybe some of those awkward conversations, the more natural they come. And it's no different than like, I, I I don't think you need to be very good and practice like specific manual therapy techniques, but from the same aspect where in schools they're teaching you, you got to get the reps in, you got to get the reps in with your manipulations that you can get good at it. You got to get the reps in of having these tough conversations so that you know how to, what direction you can take it or um, what ways you can maybe change the conversation if something rough comes up. And that's like, I get a lot of students like DMing me and asking things like, what's the most important thing to focus on and what should I do? And my answer is always communication. Learn, learn to talk to people because you're going to have those tough conversations and those can really throw you off if you're not used to them. Yep. So what would be your tips, you know, cause you know, communication can come really hard for some people, right. And not everybody has a podcast, right. So yeah. we'll, we'll, and, and just in our particular shoes, not a lot of kids in our clinic have a high volume amount of patients. So they have limited patient interaction. So what would be some of your tips for somebody that's really wanting to improve upon their communication? Yeah, from from the aspect of getting the reps in in a clinical setting, that can be a bit tough if you're limited to how many people you're seeing. Um, but it could be as simple as if you're still in school, get a part. Now it's tough, I know, because everything's kind of actually. You guys are flying over there, like everything's open and, and stuff in Florida. But it's Florida, <laughs> yeah, we're we're outlaws <laughs> yeah, here. That's true. Uh, but like here, everything's closed down uh, in Ontario. But uh, is like get a part time job where you're interacting with people and you know, you could try to make it more applicable. So for myself, I worked as a strength and conditioning coach for seven years when I was doing my undergrad and when I was in Cairo school. Um, And so it's, it's a little bit closer because you're working with movement and the human body and you have to interact with people all day, every day and have these conversations. But it could be even like, if you can't land a job there and you just want to find a way to make money, getting into any type of service industry where you're going to have these conversations. You're always going to deal with a grumpy person. You know, if you're working as a waiter or a waitress, you're going to have someone who's giving you a hard time. And the more of those reps you can get in come clinical practice, even though it's a completely different environment, you can still have those conversations. Um, So that's one aspect is just getting out and talking and interacting with people more. Um, But even without having to do it, 
there are so many like unbelievable resources out there for real cheap that people can have access to and, and learn about the communication process. So mm-hmm. whether it's listening to a podcast and hearing all of these very smart individuals, researchers, clinicians that kind of work within the, the biopsychosocial framework and hearing some of their stories and how they, you know, took on uh, difficult situations. The word, the words matter podcast is like one of my favorites, Oliver Thompson, I could fall asleep to his voice. It's so nice, but um, <laughs> like he, they, they talk about this stuff all the time and he has a course as well uh, where you can learn how to communicate and maybe avoid certain words that could have a negative um, effect or outcome on, on people. So all of these resources are out there. And the more you listen to those conversations and those stories, the more those seeds get planted in your mind. So when you are again in that situation in a clinical setting, it kind of, flickers in your brain and okay maybe I'll, I'll try what that person tried and see how that works mm-hmm. um at the end of the day um i don't think that there is like a, a real like good tip other than those things um from a specific clinical perspective other than like if you're in your internship where you're not in a position where it's like your your livelihood be open to getting into some maybe awkward interactions and see how you how you are able to kind of get through those. Um, don't be afraid to to start challenging maybe a patient's bias, not from like an attacking standpoint, but to question them and ask their thoughts and offer your thoughts and and see how that kind of turns out. Um, because if you again, you have to expose yourself to to those um, sort of interactions so that you're prepared for anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you think that you'll be more involved in academia and teaching in the future than on clinical practice or not really i i feel like i have like professional adhd or something i i need like a wide variety of things to to stay happy and keep going um i really like the variety that i'm currently getting into uh, into the fall so doing the master's getting into research, it, it seems like it's going to be a whole lot of fun, just learning the ropes, um, doing the teaching. Like I've always loved teaching. Um, when I was in Cairo school, like I ran clubs and stuff and always liked to do tutorials and things like that. But the, the, the job in the inpatient facility, like I love that. And I don't want to, I don't want to stop that anytime soon. Um, and there's also the aspect of where with army, And even just my own social media presence, I do want to have some form of authority. And I think if I was just to completely cut out any type of patient interaction, although it's not necessarily true, other clinicians might find that as unappealing. Well, this guy doesn't work with people anymore. So why should we listen to him? What's he, what's he talking about? Right. Um, But that, like I said, that, that place is a whole nother environment and those people need help and they're willing to put in the work and they're willing to uh, hear you out and and do that. So it's a lot more rewarding. It's not your typical person coming off the street, just hoping to get a pop in their back. And that, that doesn't make me happy. And so like, I'm, I'm, that typical clinical setting is definitely not for me. Um, But I think I do want to do all of those things. Um, for the foreseeable future anyways, some combination of the three of them. What's the end goal with Army? Um, well, actually, initially, when we first started it, it was it was Elliot and I. This was when we were like partway through Cairo school. And we just wanted to offer like seminars to strength and conditioning coaches from that sort of rehab side of things. And we were definitely, again, more entrenched in the like pathoanatomical model. So what it was intended to be when we first came up with the idea is very different than what it is now. Um, but I enjoy talking with all of these smart people that we get on so much. It is the best form of continuing education. It's free. You get to make really good connections with these individuals and create a, a pretty solid network. Um, and so that's that's a big thing is just getting that positive or that good solid evidence-based message across. We have always kind of been wanting to, to tailor our message towards clinicians and healthcare professionals. We're trying to get it out to the lay population a little bit as well, because that is important, but um, that's, that's a tough change to make with the amount of other individuals on social media with millions of followers, putting out, you know, the unlock your backs and bulletproof your shoulders <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, 
but we do want to kind of get into the the seminars and, and the teaching um, and really focusing that towards students and new grads, kind of like what the, the Level Up initiative have done. Um, because, you know, when, when students are a little bit more open uh, versus someone who's maybe 10 years out in practice who have fallen into their habits and stuff, that's probably the, the type of people you want to talk to and, and try to open up their minds a little bit. So that's kind of where we're aiming to is to get into those um, you know, some, some seminars or some teaching sessions with younger individuals, uh, in the field of healthcare. Um, and we're going to be doing some, some telehealth work too. Um, kind of like what Aaron's been doing. Um, we're probably not going to be going on TikTok for that, but, uh, <laughs> just to be able to, to reach a, a wider population and, and hopefully get some good solid care out to those people. So, uh, it's going to keep growing. It definitely grew faster than what we expected. And it's still very small. Um, we're not even like a year old yet. Um, but like, like I said earlier, the, the continuing education side of that and constantly learning and opening up your minds has been unbelievable. It's, it's been fantastic. And so it's almost like a bonus for us, I guess, <laughs> uh, on, you know, we're offering, you know, uh, some type of information to others, but what we're learning along the way, which has been the best part. Now you alluded to the bulletproofing of the back and the shoulders, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that whole circumstance. Cause it is a very popular trend that most fitness or rehab gurus use. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I get that. It sells. I get there's a reason why all of those people that put those posts out have hundreds of thousands of followers um, because they're putting out a message that seems simple and a very simple solution. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's for a complex problem. You know, a couple of stretches are not going to cure back pain because if they did, none of us would have a job right now and life would be great. No one would be in pain. Right. Um, I think there is a positive to some of those videos because it is giving people some options to move more. Um, you know, you don't see very many of them. That's like bulletproof your spine. And then it cuts to somebody throwing on like cups and needles in people and them not being, you know, developing some form of self efficacy. Um, so at least there's that side of things where it's giving people options to move. But I think that the narrative has to change with that because it's not, it's, it's really not a great message when you look at the big picture, because people think that, their back is sore because it's tight or because things aren't moving well. And that's maybe a very small part of it, but it's not the whole picture. Um, And to give people false hope almost, I know that's maybe a little bit of an extrapolation or an exaggeration, but to tell someone here, just do these three quick exercises and your back pain should be gone. And then that person does those three exercises and their back pain has not changed or gotten worse. Now that person thinks that, they've got a more serious problem. And then that can start to really go down this path of chronicity. So not only should we be aware in a clinical setting to avoid that transition from someone dealing with an acute ache to chronic pain, but these big social media posts are maybe contributing to that. There's, there's no evidence out there to suggest that um, a bulletproof your spine post causes chronic pain. But we should be maybe a little bit more considerate of, of how our words and our messages matter to people. Um, and, you know, working, working at the uh, inpatient facility, I have seen far too many horror stories from that aspect. These people, no one wants to end up at a facility like that. It's very expensive. It, it means something's maybe not gone the way it should have in your life, uh, potentially, Uh, It takes away these people's time. Like, you know, you're spending months potentially at a place like this. Uh, It changes your relationships with your friends and your family. Uh, It's really sad to see that. Um, And I've seen a a fair amount of cases where people have just been completely misinformed and misled. And that was the contributing factor to why they're at a substance dependence facility, which is very, very sad. So I mean, yes, could we take like a small positive from those posts? Sure, it's offering some form of movement. Uh, but the, the grander scheme, I don't think they're very helpful. But there's nothing wrong. Like you look at the guys from like E3 Rehab, where they're like, here are some exercises you can do if you have knee pain. 
They don't work for everybody, but try them. That's a great message to put out and you're giving people options. So that, although it's not as like sexy to the, the someone that's scrolling through their social media feed, uh, we should probably be more cognizant of, of the narratives that we're kind of putting out there to the public. And it's not that hard, right? He, he, it's just one simplistic, just like exception, like, hey, try this out. It's not 100% foolproof, but it could give you relief. You know, it's not that bad. It's not like you're, you're saying like, oh, these things are worthless, you know, where I think some, some people might think that if they kind of step down from what they're currently doing. Right. For sure. Um, yeah. No one's saying that that stuff is worthless. There's definitely some value to it, but it's, I mean, it, it's tough to put out good narratives because you have to go searching for those narratives. It's mm-hmm. not something that is popular in the lay public you know um the the common narratives for back pain is like sitting is the new smoking or don't sit slouched over with your neck forward that's gonna hurt your neck um you know there's there's a lot of fragility narratives out there when it comes to that stuff and a lot of that is being maybe unintentionally pushed in the schools in the education that's all stuff that we learned. We had a full ergonomics, um, you know, portion in biomechanics at school talking about the perfect setup where you have to measure the desk. Uh, otherwise it's putting, you know, X amount of extra force through somebody and could lead to, to back pain. Um, and so you believe that um, there's points where they're talking about, like, you know, you should practice better posture uh, and you should preach that to people. Even like uh, a lot of the campaigns from, you know, some of the, um, top organizations that are trying to to push the professions forward, whether it's physio or chiro, are putting out these, uh, you know, infographics on you know correct your posture because bad posture causes pain. Um, so these narratives aren't just like coming out of nowhere in both the public and the students. It's it's something that's being taught, and that's going to take a really long time to change. But um, you know, one one thing that I talked about again with with Zach Gabor was. We're coming out of, uh, you know, four years of education, or maybe for some it's a little bit less with a lot of debt, like school's not very cheap. And so when you get out there, you're, you're going to be doing as much as you can and using those narratives to, to build your practice. You don't really, maybe you should, but not everybody thinks that they have time to go out and continue their education outside of like weekend courses and stuff. No one not a lot of people want to go and read, you know, systematic reviews and RCTs and you don't have to, but there's definitely ways that you can try to continue to learn. But I think a lot of people don't think that they have time because they're trying to build their own sort of success. And unfortunately, if you do that for a period of time, you're not going to learn maybe what the, the more updated narratives that we should be promoting. And so they stick. And they stick for a really long time. They've been around for far too long. That's what I was thinking. Like, as you were speaking there, I was kind of thinking to myself, is just like, you know, we have the available evidence and we, we kind of threw this idea around where the reason why um, we're not really taught the latest stuff right now is because they're teaching for the boards and the boards is what's going to say that we are, you know, up to date with the current literature, which it's not. So I was just kind of thinking to myself, why is this so prevalent? Because it could be as simple as just having influence with the curriculum at a single school and just having a single school switch their views has a massive impact. We are, we are releasing what hundred plus students every three months, you know? And, but once again, it kind of comes down to the board. So you'd have to find this hybrid style of saying, Hey, when you see this on the test circle this, but this is bullshit, you know, like, right. It's so it's it's like a catch 22. That's a really good point because a a school could completely upheave their curriculum and update it and students would learn that. And we've all been through there. Like if you're already someone who thinks kind of outside the box of what you've been taught, you're used to looking at a test and like seeing no right answers and being like, but I think that this is the one that they're looking for. And you'd be getting a lot of that. And from what I understand um, from talking to some of the higher ups is that uh, in some cases where they have tried to like reform some of the curriculum, it's been causing some issues in performance with like boards. And so that's probably where things need to start is, is changing some of that stuff. 
but I still think there's value in if, if you're in a position of, of, of power as a professor or a teacher, and you know that somebody needs to know X information to answer their questions right on the boards, I think it's important to caveat, like put a caveat with everything and say mm-hmm. like, but this is what the best evidence at this time says so that students are at least exposed to that. Sure, for sure. The, the one thing that I've seen that was lacking in our curriculum and with some of my peers, they kind of learn the concepts of rehabilitation, but they have absolutely no clue how to like implement it at all. Like, you know, they doesn't matter if it's a 600 pound power lifter, world-class athlete or an old lady, they will all get a dead bug. They will all get yeah. some sort of bird dog because they have low back pain. So I was just curious if you've seen something similar when you were going through school. Oh, hundred percent. We, we had, Oh God, how many hours of rehab, like actual practical rehab in lab, maybe eight in the four years. Um, so yeah. And, and, but that's what you go over. It's the, how to cue a bird dog and a side plank and the McGill curl up dead bugs, the old, um, put the blood pressure cuff behind your neck and do chin tucks. Um, and maybe those are options that are like points of entry for some people. But if that's all you're using, you're, you're going to have a hard time in clinical practice, right? Like I said, that one lady in the example earlier, she was, she was just getting like some core stability work and breathing. Um, and that wasn't cutting it for her. Right. And it's too early to say what will, but if that's all you have in your sort of tool bag, you're going to have a, a bad time. And it's important to, realize that it's not just like this cut and paste thing. Like, okay, well, what's the perfect exercise for this? Because there is no perfect exercise for any condition. It's got to fit the person in front of you. Um, Like be creative, like Mm -hmm. figure out what doesn't feel good, what does feel good and try to turn that into an exercise, understanding what those people enjoy. And I know that that's maybe like, as the pendulum swings in the opposite direction, that almost seems like it's being like overvalued in terms of like, ah, you don't need to do anything. You just need to do something you enjoy, but it does, it is important because if someone's not enjoying the, the work that they're doing or it doesn't have value to them, they're not going to do it. Um, but on the side of like enjoyment, you don't have to enjoy an exercise if you know that this is a valuable movement and it's going to help you with your goals. So that's something to, to consider, but, but yeah, just doing like, core exercises for back pain is definitely not going to cut it. You need to be, um, again, like it's, it's not the exercises that you choose. It's how can you coach somebody through it? If it's not working for them, how can you regress it? If it's a little bit too much, how can you progress it? If you think that they can handle more load and they're not getting loaded enough, you have to be able to be quick on your feet and change things up. And that's probably what makes a better, um, rehab clinician versus someone who's just taking something off of a program or a piece of paper or what they were taught in school and say, just do this for your back pain. Cause it's supposed to help. Yeah. It's the adaptation. Re- rehab here in Palmer is, Oh, you got low back pain. Let's do an SFMA screening. Oh, you need 90, 90 internal external rotations and pails and rails for everybody. It's like, I, I don't know. the wide reach of, of FR, right? Yeah. I mean, it's movement. It's good, but <laughs> not an yeah. end of deal right not all movement is good for everybody in the sense of like helping them like yeah move more we we know what the physical activity guidelines say and how that will help with a wide variety of things but um yeah 90 90s aren't going to be for everybody <laughs> like yeah. you can't just give that out for anybody who has hip pain and back pain exactly. um but yeah you're absolutely right just it would be nice to have more exposure to that kind of stuff. And then that also falls into preparing yourself where I was saying about like learning communication skills. If you know, you're going into a healthcare profession, um, maybe try working as some type of a coach or a trainer so that you can get exposed to some of those movements and those. So you're developing your, your communication skills in that sense, but then you're also, you know, learning more about movement and how you can implement that into someone's care. Yep. So you kind of alluded to like maybe going through an awkward situation and it kind of kept you up at night, right? Um, you seem like somebody that would reflect upon your patient interactions and I'm the same way. And I was just curious if you've had a, a certain case that always kind of keeps you up at night, like, man, that was either you were puzzled or that was extremely awkward or, you know what I'm saying? That one that maybe have gotten away. Sure. 
lots of those actually. And I'll, I'll be open to it. I, I don't think it's helpful when people who go out into practice say just only talk about their success stories because then it, it leads to the new grads and the students to believe that that's what they should expect. And then you can get disheartened when you first get out and you have a lot of failures because there will be a, a decent amount. Um, I would say a big thing was after my sort of transition from that more pathoanatomical model to just being very minimalistic and not doing a lot of hands-on there was probably a case or two of people that came in with just typical low back pain um and i hadn't really developed my communication skills to to where i'd like them to be and i'm still i'm still developing them but i probably didn't hear them out enough so they came in and it was nothing serious we ruled out everything serious and I basically just told them this is this is going to get better. And I wasn't wrong. And I said, just get some of these movements in and and you'll probably be feeling good in a couple of weeks. Maybe we can check up in a week and see where you're at. Um, and they and those people didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And feedback to the clinic was, well, it was he was a nice guy. And, uh, you know, he gave me some exercises and stuff, but I wasn't too sure if like that was everything he could have done. And so sometimes it's if you're not asking somebody what they're expecting and you're just giving them your approach, you're, you're probably not going to get the, the best sort of feedback or interactions with that. And so th- those types of things will happen. And since then, what I've asked is I ask everybody, what, what's your expectation for today's session? What were you hoping to achieve today? What were you expecting me to do? Um, and if a lot of times people don't really know what they want and they're like, honestly, I just want some answers and, and I want to see what we can do. And in those cases, then I go through that process that I talked about earlier, find some good movements that feel good for them, educate them a little bit more, tell them that it is going to be okay. And try to give that solid sort of um, means of communication if anything goes wrong. Uh, and if they do come in and say, well, you know, I watched some YouTube videos and some guy like ripped some guy's spine from their neck. Uh, and I wanted to try that. Well, then I know that they do have an expectation that they want you to to be a little bit more hands-on in that session. So even though it's not for me and it's not going to tell me a whole lot, I'll probably do a little bit more poking and prodding and and let them know through that. And in those cases, um, as long as I don't feel like it's contraindicated or uh, is going to cause someone any harm, then yeah, I'll offer them maybe like a manipulation or something. And so that's, that's the sense of like meeting somebody halfway. You don't have to necessarily meet them exactly halfway, but just understanding what their expectations are can, can maybe shape the way that you're going to talk to them and, and, and provide you with a little bit more guidance and how the rest of your session should go to be able to build that sort of trust with them so that they're not walking out of that first session and thinking like, well, that wasn't for me. That's like one of the biggest pro tips that I received. And when I utilized it, I felt like, wow, I should have been doing this my whole life. Just because as you, as you mentioned, when they kind of just list off what they're expecting, you like, well, I can definitely check off all these boxes. And as I check off these boxes, these are opportunities that I can explain why or why not. It's not the most effective or where we can prioritize something over another thing, you know? And it seems almost too simple, you know, <laughs> it always, yeah, the, the simple thing is probably the, the, the right answer, but you're absolutely right. Because that also comes into the idea of informed consent, which I don't think is being actually done correctly in most clinical interactions. It's not about reading the list of things that could go wrong. It's actually letting somebody know where you don't have to get into listing off authors and years of papers and titles. But I think it's important to let someone know if they want spinal manipulation and they think it's going to fix them, you have to at least provide them with the information that you're not putting bones back into place because bones never came out of place in the first place. Mm -hmm. Or this isn't going to be what's fixing you. You don't need this a lot because what the literature does say is less is more when it comes to back pain or even neck pain, whiplash. Um, So letting people know that and after going through its efficacy and what it does and what it can offer them, if they still choose not to hear that out and say, I still want this, then that's when maybe you can kind of dip into the whole patient preference side of things. And uh, on the topic of patient preference, it it shouldn't just be about they ask something because if something really doesn't work well, like you probably shouldn't be wasting their time with that. Um, But if, if you're not going through that, 
conversation and saying, well, this actually doesn't do this. This is what it is. And there are some risks associated with it. Because the one thing that a lot of people don't realize is like with spinal manipulation, there's actually a pretty high like adverse event. When we're talking about adverse events, we're not the big ones like, you know, stroke and disc herniation or fractures. Those are minute, right? But just like temporary worsening of symptoms, it's pretty, it's pretty darn high. I think the number is 55% of the time. So, you know, if someone's like, well, I feel good, but I just thought maybe I'd get a pop. Well, you need to let them know that there is a risk that you could walk out of here actually feeling maybe a little bit more tender or worse than when you walked in. Um, And if they're like, yeah, I don't care, then sure, you can probably provide that, right? But if you're not letting people know this stuff, then that's not truly informed consent. So you mentioned that like, you know, you're dipping into patient preference and you kind of explain like, hey, maybe this isn't the best thing for you. Um, and they basically say, I want it anyways. Is there maybe a circumstance where you might say like, look, this is kind of where I put my foot down. I'm not going to supply this service to you. Um, or do you kind of just go along with the patient preference? How do, how do you navigate that space? Right. Um, if there's an absolute contraindication, no, they're not getting it. Like, no way. I'm not putting my license on the line and I'm not putting their well-being on the line. That's more important than my license, actually, is I don't want something bad to happen to them. So in those cases, absolutely not. They're not getting it. If someone, you know, if if someone seems to have a pretty red flaggy profile, they're they're not getting something that in the grand scheme of things is only offering temporary relief in the first place. So mm. that's that that risk reward profile just doesn't make sense to me. Um Otherwise, you know, if it's something that really, like we know, doesn't make sense, something like ultrasound, <laughs> yep. you know what? I don't even know how to use an ultrasound machine. So, and, and so I'll tell them, you know what, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't personally use that. Uh, if you're absolutely set and if they haven't really kind of like, if, if what we've talked about hasn't really set in and they're like, no, I still really want this, then I'll refer them to somebody else. Okay. Um, there's a lot of modalities. I, I, I don't use modalities. There, there was one case where somebody had absolutely requested shockwave um, for a condition that it's not even really indicated for. And they were like, I'm coming in anyways. And so in those cases, you can just do the assessment, offer them what they'd like, and then send them to someone who's maybe willing to do that if they're not going to hear you out. Because um, yeah, like I, from from one aspect, you... <laughs> It's not helping them that they're going to see somebody else who's going to offer them maybe a low value care. Um, but at the same time, like I'm, if, if I've done my best to kind of get that message across, I'm not going to be the person that's offering that to them. So um, I'll, I'll let them go work with somebody else and refer out. Yeah. Cause yeah. the thought process to that is kind of like, Oh, maybe if I supply some of these things that they're really asking for, this might create more time for me to get my point across. You know, that's what some people might think, but I like your point of view where it's kind of just like, hey, look, if I haven't gotten anywhere by this point, I'm not going to play this game. And and I actually had a, um, a patient pass down to me. He wants shockwave because his quads are sore. And I try to explain to him, like, why are they sore? And then he just says, oh, you know, I just ran six miles. Okay. What do you think the shockwave will do? And he just says, well, I don't know. And just like, do you even know why you want this thing? It's because right, right. previous people have said, hey, maybe you should try the shockwave. So it's like now I'm plagued with this issue. <laughs> yeah, it, it, those social narratives really can mess you up in clinical practice. And it, it does make it become very frustrating and it wears on you. But but you're right. Um, it, if it's something that offers absolutely no value and it's not indicated, yeah, I'm probably not going to give in, but I do see the value in like, okay, maybe I'll offer them this one therapy and then we can have more conversations and, you know, build a little bit of a relationship and maybe get that point across. If, if you see that there's hope um, Mm -hmm. in someone, if they're willing to listen or hear you out. Um, So for example, like SMT, can it help some people sometimes to some amount for pain relief? Yes. So in that case, if someone's adamant on that and they have back pain and Mm -hmm. the guidelines say, yes, you can use that as an adjunct. Sure. I'll do it. Right. I don't do it often. I, I, I rarely do it, but if in those cases I'll do it, but then going back to this idea of like ultrasound, if someone's asking for that. And I, I think that, you know, that one's in the books. We know, (laughs) we know is doing nothing. Um, I'm not, 
I'm not providing that service. So yeah, it's, there is some value in like offering somebody something that they want um, so that you can spend that time to foster a little bit more buy-in, but uh, in some cases it's probably not worth it. And they would just be happier to go see the provider that's going to ask no questions and offer that to them. Right on. Mm-hmm. You got anything over there, big boy? I, I don't have any questions. Dave, right this on. has been awesome, man. Yeah, absolutely. I did have one more thing if you wanted me to kind of get into it. Go ahead. Um, Throw it down. Yeah. Because like one point that like I, I've been seeing a lot of like the flack that um, – Aaron's been getting from, from certain practitioners and stuff um, where he's talking a little bit about like who you shouldn't see and some, some horror stories and things. And I think it's, you see some of the comments saying, well, he's kind of like putting down the profession and he's not defending the profession. Um, And I don't think that those comments are fair because there are a lot of different environments that you can be in where you're going to be exposed to some of the other negative outcomes that can come from healthcare. And he's in an environment where, he's having a lot of people with like these horror stories that have seen other practitioners and now he's getting to deal with them. And I can fully understand that from my experience uh, where I'm at dealing with people with chronic pain. I've had some significant cases. I'll give you a couple of examples. So I had one fella who, uh, when he came in, it it was a pretty obvious cervical radiculopathy. He was kind of coming on, on the downswing of things, but at the time when it had first happened, like he had, you know, poor motor control, like there was objective findings that he should have been referred out. Um, and the practitioner that he saw said, yeah, it's, it's a pinch nerve and it'll probably get better in a couple of weeks. Maybe it'll take a little longer. Well, first off, absolutely wrong prognosis for cervical radiculopathy that's not helping somebody when they think, okay, I'm going to be better in two weeks. Uh, and then the plan of management was tens ultrasound and trying to do some manipulation. And that was it. That's, that's what this guy got when we were talking. And so after almost two months of things actually getting worse throughout all of this, this person chose a different coping mechanism and wound up, um, you know, admitting himself into a facility. That's, that's so sad. Like that, that ruined my day hearing that story. Um, And so when we're saying like, yeah, there's really not that much risk about doing this stuff. You're being too picky on these people that are maybe offering low value care. When you're in an insulated environment, like a typical clinic where most people are coming in with back pain, neck pain. um, And these people are coming to your clinic because they don't have any probably, you know, poor biases against your profession. So it's probably going to be a lot more positive interactions. You're, you're going to see things, people get better, especially as I said before, a lot of these are benign things that have really good natural history. So almost no matter what you do, they're going to get better, right? So seeing where bad information and poor care can really alter someone's life like that that's when you start to realize maybe we should be a little bit more picky and we should be calling out some of the BS because like, yeah, that, that just makes you so sad. And that's somebody's time. That's their life. That's their money. Um, and fortunately enough, we, we got all those messages across. And by the time he was leaving, he was far more like had far more self-efficacy and he was already like on the upswing of natural history. So I'm not taking credit for that. And also what we did, there's a full team of like, um, therapists and stuff. So all of that helps somebody get better too. So it wasn't me, but being in an environment where you're actually informed and getting some solid care can help things. But the fact that you have to go through all of that stuff and that can lead you to that environment, um, not good, not good. So I think where people are getting frustrated with folks like yourselves, like Aaron, like myself, who are a little bit more rigid in our stances and calling out BS, uh, whether it's through like funny memes or whether it's just saying, look, we got to stop this. Um, You have to remember that until you're kind of in that environment where you can see these really bad horror stories. And I've seen a lot there, by the way. Um, You got to realize that that's out there and, and maybe it's worth kind of taking that second look and, and really trying to be the best clinician that you can be and staying up to date on things. 
it's it's kind of crazy how you think about it if you put it into a large perspective if this person's most likely going to get better on their own if they just did their own thing without any help and now you're supplying a service that can actually make them potentially worse you got to look at it from that perspective because a lot of people are like oh yeah I'm just, it makes them feel good i'm going to adjust them like if they're if they're getting better and i and i'm supplying that what's the harm the harm is there you know they don't look at it from a macro perspective they just think they feel good when they get off the table cuz i crunch 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 them you know right and they think that the harms are just like the the rib fractures and the those types of risks. Those are not the harms. The harms are financial burden on somebody, um, a waste of their time when they could have been doing something that helped them, loss of self-efficacy. You know, those are those are the real harms. And then also the fact that we have the data that suggests that about 20% of the people of people who are dealing with an acute bout of pain progress to chronicity. And we know that the things that we do in clinical practice can have an effect on that. If we're not following in line with like, um, you know, guideline recommended care that that, and that's dose dependent too. So if you're offering one thing that maybe isn't recommended that, that ups someone's chance by a little bit, if you're starting to do two and three, that makes it even, even higher. And like the fact that there was a award-winning paper from 1987 by Gordon Waddell, 1987, that said, we need to just step back with people with low back pain and take advantage of the happy natural history. Uh, you're absolutely right. If you get the wrong words in there or, or, you know, have like some poor interactions with somebody and then it develops into chronic pain, that could have potentially been avoided without seeking that form of care, right? And those numbers are going up. It's not 20, the, the projected numbers aren't 20% anymore. It's 25%, but I think it's like, it, by 2030, I think it's 25% of people um, that's what they're projecting for transition to chronic pain, which is nuts. Not not only the, the financial burden, but pain chronicity comes with a lot of bad outcomes as well. Just like poor relationships with family, friends, you no longer go out, no social support, like your marriage yeah, can yeah. go to hell. Like it affects every single aspect of your life. So if you get mad because someone's calling out your bullshit, like maybe you should check your own biases because... Yes, you might have helped someone with acute pain, but you haven't had that one bad case where you're like, oh, damn, like this is more serious than just a regular ache, you know? Yeah, you got to go through maybe that case where you you really like let somebody down and they developed some some pretty bad outcomes. And sometimes that's not even enough because we're usually shrouded in our own bias of all the other successes. And there is that narrative amongst healthcare practitioners where it's like, well, they just weren't. Um, adherent to their exercise program it was it was they they failed the therapy I didn't fail them sort of thing right so there's there's research showing that you don't have to be adherent to your exercises to get better right Mm -hmm. that's exactly it but um, yeah It, it, it would just be nice if 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 more people were open to to just some of these newer concepts and opening up their minds to critical thinking, um, understanding that there are a lot of biases, uh, personal biases that are instilled in us um, from clinical practice. Like having a conversation with someone and explaining the post hoc fallacy can be like you're banging your head against the brick wall because it's tough to understand, but it's important to learn those things, I, I think. Um, but yeah, on that note of like chronicity, it's like there's the potential that we're, it's, it's iatrogenic. Yeah, it's, it's we were impossible. talking about that, yeah. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I don't even want to. That, that was well said. You know, like I'm gonna get myself in trouble. So just. <laughs> yeah, I was I was warned by by my uh, my buds in army to not not cancel myself or anything like that. But I don't think we've said anything too bad. It's just it's just a good, healthy conversation. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I think everything is fact. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've already cursed a couple of times. So I, I was invited to uh it was a Cairo podcast last week and I tried so hard to keep it professional. Like I, I was like, okay, no bad words, like no, no bad things about Cairo. It was, it was, it was hard. It's yeah. Cause you're so passionate because, cause you want, you want people to get better. You want healthcare to be better. So I understand that. 
It's you go, especially when it's early on, um, you're a lot more angry as, as time goes on. You're still pretty like nihilistic and stuff like that, but some of the anger goes away and you start putting your energy into like making that positive change. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, it's very frustrating having spent all that money and that time and, and seeing, you know, musculoskeletal conditions like that, that realm of healthcare is just very poorly managed and, and the burden is going up. So yep. I understand why it's so hard not to say some things when there's a lot of bad stuff going on and you'd like it to not be right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep. for sure. Well, Dave, this has been awesome. Thank God you brought up that last topic because that was, Oh that yeah, was, that was great. <laughs> was my favorite part. <laughs> right on. But like, yeah, I did. A lot of people aren't exposed to it, and I, I think it's important that they do. Uh, I'm just, I'm super lucky. Like I said, I was lucky to even land this job in the first place, but uh, it's definitely broadened my perspectives on a lot of things, um, and it's, it gives, it adds a little bit of context to to why I I try to challenge things so often because you, you see it every day when you're working there, right? So, uh, and I hope that in the future more people get those opportunities. To, to work in those types of facilities. I, I think that's something that even in the chiropractic profession, there's not a lot of, right. Um, and we have to, we have to keep in mind that there are a ha- like there are good chiropractors out there. Um, For sure. yeah. There are some really good chiros out there that could offer some great care in those settings. So hopefully some of those opportunities arise in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So the, for sake of clarification, the, the critiques, it was on the curri- curriculum that we've all gone through. And yeah. it's more like, you know, yeah. the system <laughs> that's, that's yes. creating the monster more so than us pointing at monsters. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's going to take time to change that, unfortunately. And we'll see if it even changes at all, but we can only keep our fingers crossed and only keep doing stuff that you guys are doing and what we're trying to do at army and what all of these other, um, you know, awesome speakers are doing is just get, try to get that solid message across and inform people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Dave, where can everyone find you and the army? Um, yeah, I guess. So for the army, we're at the army.ca, uh, on Instagram uh www.thearmy.ca where we post uh all of our articles we usually post one every couple of weeks um mm-hmm. that's usually helpful and these aren't just like opinion pieces these like we put a lot of time and work into them they usually have about like 20 plus citations uh, it takes a lot of time to do those uh and then like our podcast is on anybody's favorite uh streaming services and then for myself uh i i recently changed my my handle on Instagram. It's Dave.Army on Instagram. Uh, and then I recently, uh, Aaron convinced me to, to hop into the, the TikTok world. So it's the exact same thing as Dave.Army on, on TikTok, where I'm kind of following in his footsteps a little bit, trying to get some decent <laughs> information out there and just being a little funny, having some fun with it. I'll link that to the show notes where anybody can find you easier. Right on. Appreciate it, guys. We'll be off air now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>